Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Yo, what's up, Sam? How you doing, man? I'm good, man. Very excited for today's guest. We got a heavy hitter. Yeah, man, a real legend. You know, I, I first came across this artist or across this engineer and artist a couple years ago. A friend of mine was was making music with a friend and ended up getting a meeting with him. And he told me about Anthony Kilhoffer. And that was the first time I heard his name. Um, since then, he's obviously grown to be an even bigger legend than he was before. At the time, he was super notable for working with Kanye West and Travis Scott, and now he has his own label, First Gen. So for those who aren't familiar, he is a record producer, songwriter, and engineer. Um, He's worked with, like I said, Kanye West, uh, was Travis Scott's first manager, worked with Kid Cudi, Rick Ross. He's won four Grammys. Um, In addition to mixing a lot of the biggest songs in music, he co-founded the record label First Gen, which is a single first record label. So they they, they release singles first. The way he explained it in the episode is we go on dates with artists. We release one song at a time. If we want to go on another date, we'll go on another date. Um, In his words, he explained it as singles is kind of where it's at. So I'm super excited about this episode because we cover a lot of different things. We cover what it's like to be a producer, what it's like to be an engineer, and the business behind it. So we talk about what a mixing engineer does, what a mastering engineer does. He explains that you can kind of compare it to a waiter. They're there to serve. But we also talk about what the deal structure for a mixing engineer is. So, you know, if you're a producer, if you're a mixing engineer, you'll not only get keys to make your creative workflow a little better, but you'll also get to know the logistics and the business behind what he does. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I thought it was dope. I mean, as somebody that grew up in, in Chicago, I mean, he, like like the Grammys he won, three out of the four Grammys he won were for playing a role in the production and engineering of Kanye West's, like, the old Kanye. You can't deny the old Kanye. And, and <laughs> this man was right here uh, with it. Um, he was, I mean, accredited on late registration, um, the college dropout, um, graduation, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. I think it, this dude is no joke when it comes to his, his ability as a kind of mixing engineer, uh, his experience in production and all that good stuff. So I think what I particularly love about this episode was um, I think, A, the keys to a great song. I think like he, he speaks in depth around really what separates a good song from a great song, all the way down to the very nitty gritty nuances of mixing and mastering hits. I mean, to be honest, some of this stuff too, it's uh, like he gets very, very granular when it comes to various mixing and mastering techniques that he uses. So much so that he even breaks down the beat structure and some keys that he keeps in mind when arranging various songs. And they, I mean, it was a very dope flex because at one point, like Jordan's like, okay, so what's the example of when you use this kind of this general like framework of arrangement? He's like, Monster by Kanye West. I was like, yeah, <laughs> mom, geez, all right, Anthony, calm down, player. Um, so, and then I think lastly, too, I mean, he's worked with some incredible people. He was Travis Scott's first manager. I mean, he was there from the, the ascent. I mean, he worked tons with Kanye West, Kid Cudi, all these other artists. So what he kind of learned in working with them and how he was able to generate some of those opportunities. So really grateful to have had him on. And if you haven't already, I definitely want to encourage you guys. You've got a really cool label, First Gen. So be sure to check out the new record, Feeling Bad, by their artist, Gone Till Monday. So super. It's, it's a heater. It's got the, the Anthony Kilhoffer. 
uh, mixing and mastering. You know it's going to sound crispy. So without any further ado, let, let's get into the episode. Mr. Anthony Kohoffer. Let's do it. Hold up. Hold up. One last thing. Major shout out to Ruben Rincon. Um, Ruben is a, a fan of the Music Business Podcast, been a longtime supporter, super grateful for his support. But he actually is the one that proposed and hooked us up and plugged us with Mr. Anthony Kohoffer today. So thank you, Ruben. Be sure to check him out if you haven't already. And if there's anybody that you guys think could be a really great fit for the podcast, that's experienced, credible, some unique stories and perspectives to share, sign into our DMs. Let's, let's get talking. All right. For well, sure. Without any further ado, let's get into it. Anthony, what's happening, man? How you doing today? I am well. Yourself? Cannot complain. Very, very excited to have you on. I think uh got a wealth of experience, and uh, I think it should be super valuable for our listeners, man. So to jump right into it, man, I'd love to just kind of hear for starters, like, obviously, uh, the world's in a crazy place right now, um, COVID, Black Lives Matter movement, I think, grateful for a lot of the progress and that's being made. But even just in regards to lockdown and, and COVID, how has your kind of creative flow and just general like workflow changed? Like, what, what's kind of your day to day looking like these days? I mean, honestly, nothing has changed really with me in the COVID thing, except my daughter. I have a 10-year-old daughter and she's at home now. uh, So we have to, I have to help educate her in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, honestly, um, not much has changed. You know, I go to the studio every day uh, and that's what's up. Right on. Well, I think there's... um I think one most of, the of my clients don't come in and didn't mean to cut you off, but most of my clients aren't here. People I mix for usually don't come in. They just send me the music anyways. Job so. virtual. All right. Yeah, yeah, for right. sure. Um, so I think one topic, and I know we definitely want to dive into a couple different categories, but I think one uh, category is I think mixing and mastering and, and engineering songs is, is clearly an art and a science. And I think there's, uh, a broad range of skills and kind of level of uh, that you can do it at. I think oftentimes when people are just trying to like get their song finished, whether they're working, they might just buy a beat off YouTube and then pay somebody like $50 to like mix or master their song. But I think you've kind of uh, done and engineered and produced at the, the highest of levels. So from your perspective, I mean, even just for the fundamentals and foundations for people that might not be as a customer, have a very deep understanding of like the mixing and mastering and engineering process. What exactly, from your perspective, does it mean to mix and master at a high level? I mean, what what does it mean? Yeah, like what's the what's the part? What's the mixing mastering part of a song for people who may not know? Uh, we'll dive I, deeper into it. Yeah, yeah. specifics. I think it's all it's all uh, like, what are you talking about? You know, because some people, what what do they expect, and what is their rationale? You know, some people accept crap and so therefore that's what they put into the world and they don't understand why they don't have fans and that's why they don't gain any traction you know but they just play it to the homies and they're all high as fuck and they don't know and you know i think people just compromise i think what's what's wrong Mm -hmm. all these artists right now grow up with everybody gets a fucking trophy and everyone's a genius and everyone's got a clothing line and a brand and they're they produce I don't know how many fucking emails I get. I produced it. I engineered it. I wrote it. <laughs> da, da, da. Well, maybe you should work with somebody else. That'll, you know. <laughs> what I always say is Steve Jobs didn't make the fucking iPhone by himself. Okay. Right. He had Wachowski, right? Steve would have been nothing with Jobs would have been nothing with Wachowski. If you don't find your Wachowski, then, you know, 
it's just I don't know, but that's you know now everyone is like, oh well, I, I can do it, and I I know, and I have all the answers, but you know, and I'm not saying that some people don't. You know, I I think that if you are intelligent and you know you're a gifted individual, like some people are just good at a lot of things, right? Like Justin Bieber is great at basketball, and he can play piano and he can sing. And, you know, I think some people have to deal. I mean, I I wanted him to be an artist too, but I realized that I sucked, so I quit. Right? Mm-hmm. Don't realize they suck. They just they won't listen. They're so fucking delusional. They just keep you know wasting their life away trying to be something. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the fine tuning the quality, I mean, I feel like some people aren't even don't haven't even necessarily trained their ear enough to really understand a lot of the little things that are happening in the the nitty gritty of a song. So when you're trying to focus or when you say that there's room to improve the quality from a a production and and mixing and mastering and completing a a well-rounded song, like what are different areas where you're kind of paying attention to where you see that it can really help somebody go from like mediocre to good or from good to great? Well, I think like arrangement, number one, no one, no one thinks about arrangement. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the most important uh, because it has to have some kind of different um, non-linear uh lenny like non-linean i can't see the word non <laughs> non-lineal feel to it right it can't be the same production in the beginning and the same production in the chorus and the same production in the second verse and the same production you know that you know that's like key you know what mm-hmm. i mean because the listeners ear know no matter how great your verse is you know people's attention gets lost after like the first 30 seconds, no matter how great the verse is, how great the hook is, you got to keep changing shit. It's like the same way when you watch a movie, right? They don't shoot the whole 30 minutes, first half of the movie in one shot. <laughs> That's what my dad used to say. He was a, he was a jazz musician for a long time and I would try to show him records and I'd be like, dad, you should check out this song, you know, trying to get him up on new music. And he'd be like, this, this, that's the first thing he would notice is, is the arrangement. He would say, this song is the same from the beginning of the end. The, uh, the, the music is the same from the beginning of the end. And, and I would always get so frustrated because sometimes it'd be my favorite songs, but you know, he was right. I do think the dynamics of a song in terms of the arrangement is, is, is underappreciated for sure. Well, I think in some, like, I remember when the Wu-Tang came out and, you know, some of that Wu-Tang early music was, you know, it was very similar all the way from start to the end, but it depends how excellent the production is and how inspiring it is. But yes, in most cases, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. And like everything else these days, nobody believes it is, you know, but so. Right, right. Um, so when it comes to arrangement, I guess you obviously don't, it's not one size fits all type thing. Um, but in your head, when you think about arrangement, what are some keys that you try to put into your own work where you kind of know, okay, this will make sure that the artist or the, the listener rather uh, will, will stay engaged? Well, I mean, like I said, you definitely have more shit in, you know, I like to put the chorus first, oftentimes, off the mm-hmm. jump, right? Uh, and then take a lot of elements out for the first verse, then more elements back into the hook. In second verse, no snares, no hats, only low-end stuff for the first eight or the first four bars. So then you notice that you've just finished the hook and you've just started, you know, you're into a new part of the song now, right? So 
you know, and then it just gives the, it, it, now the listener is going to pay more attention because it's changed. So what's a couple of examples that you've worked on and that you know of that are, that are, uh, I guess, exemplary examples of that, that people can, that people can look Monster. up and, and listen There's to. Kanye's song Monster on uh, Dark Twisty Fantasy. Second verse of Monster is a great example. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's so, a great album. So. So beyond uh, arrangement, so going back to the overarching question of like some of the most important things to keep in mind from a production and mixing and mastering and polishing a song process, beyond arrangement, what are other things that you're paying attention to that will separate a mediocre or good song from a great song? Well, I think, you know, you can't always, I, I mean, the second thing, but I'll get back to this, that, you know, it's not about what the sonics are, okay? What, what a song does is tells a story. Okay, so it's like you could have a great sonic perfect piece of work, right? Like, for instance, if you heard a song from Japan and it sounded fucking amazing, but you didn't understand the lyrics, you're not going to listen to it twice because you're not getting a story, right? So who cares what the sonics is? It could sound better than Dr. Dre. It could be an epic mix. You know, all the technical things could be perfect, but no story. Why would you listen to it twice? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, what I think, though, what amateurs don't get to make it sound more professional in kind of what you're asking is um, the brightness of the high end and the width of a song. Mm. You know, like, if you're really, if it's like a, you know, music today, especially EDM music, it's super wide, you know, uh, and it's super bright in most cases. Like most of all the music you hear on the radio has like a shine above five, you know, above seven to 20 K. And it was, it's really bright. That's what makes it sound like professional. Can you define wide and bright for people that aren't as, don't, may not have expertise. Uh, okay. Uh, bright would be like a wax on a car. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know what I think, you know, like you see a dirty Tesla, it doesn't look as cool, does it? <laughs> but a Tesla that's shined up, you know, same thing. You could have a 87 BMW, and if it had a new wax on it, you'd be like, oh, my God, it's just fire. But then <laughs> if it's, you know, <laughs> you could have a new S-Class Mercedes, and it'd be dirty as hell, and you'd be like, oh, that, that looks like a Honda. So that's mm -hmm. the difference between, and you achieve that by, you know, a high-end EQ on on the stereo output and, and boosting, you know, I would say above shelving between 10K and, and 20K. And the width is just like you, you know, the width, you notice, notice, notice mostly in EDM music, but the width would be like, uh, you know, what, Ozone has a stereo image plug-in in the, in the or a, you know, a piece that you can use or, um, BX Solo widener plugin or uh, Waves is a widener plugin. Nice, that's awesome, super helpful. So, can you talk? I mean, I, I know building and, and finishing songs too can also be like an iterative process. And I know a lot of time you're, I mean, going back to some of the different principles and tactics you just mentioned, but are there any specific examples of songs where you felt it, it had a very kind of like beautiful evolution where maybe like the first time and the first iteration was like, eh, but then by the time it, it was done and polished all, all uh, it was, where you polish the BMW. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> he waxed exactly. the BMW. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's just kind of, uh, I mean, I feel like I try to do that to everything I touch. That's the whole point mm-hmm. of a professional right. mixer. Because if you were a professional mixer, then you would just be the guy recording the vocals. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, I would think that that's why people call me because they're not happy with, you know, what they have currently. And when you, like if you had, you know, take the song that you just wrote and you feel good about and you listen next to a Drake song and you listen next to a future song and you're like, gosh, it, you know, I, I, it doesn't sound the same. You know? mm-hmm. Why, why doesn't it, why don't I get the same feel from the future song as I get from my song? So, right. you know, that's, you know, I don't know. I can't think of any specific examples because I hope I'm giving that example of everything I touch. Right. Yeah, yeah for sure. Right. It feels like, too, when you listen to, like, a new Music Friday, you know, you can kind of, you know, hear it. And then it's not only that, but, like, when you – the real way to get into the matrix, into the music business matrix is when, you know, uh, a sync license, right, or something to film and TV. So how are you going to get that? Because whatever ad agency or whatever marketing person listens to your song and it doesn't sound like Travis or it doesn't sound like future. It doesn't sound like Kanye. Well, you're not going to get that fucking sync. Okay. So you're going to miss out on that right. check and you're going to get miss out on that promotion. So, but you know, you might as well just pay $50 for your buddy to mix it because you know, he said he that he's good at it. So what's the mix and mastering process like at your level? I mean, I, I used to make music like years ago and I kind of just sent it to an engineer. You know, there wasn't too many notes. I kind of gave a reference for a song and they would send it back and I would give notes on it after that. Um, but obviously at your level, it's a much more creative process. It's a much more intense process. You know, if I've hired you to mix and master one of my songs, what are some things that you ask the musician before they send you the, before they send you the song or after they send you the song? to kind of give them the level of quality or the the vibe that they want. Cause I, you know, mixing and mastering in my opinion can change an entire song completely, you know? I mean, I just think, uh, I don't know. I just give them, you know, I ask them what they want it to sound like, give them a, a reference. Mm-hmm. I ask for the mix that they, where they left off with it, you know? So I know how they had it balanced because I'm not into changing shit. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I want to make it exactly like their reference mix only better. Right. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, what I found is when you go in and you find some part that you like and you turn it up, they, they usually don't like that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say that. Um, I worked with a client recently who uh, was mixing and mastering for another artist. It was a rapper mixing him who also mixers and masters, and he did it for another artist. And when the artist got the song, he turned up the drums a little bit louder than the previous artist had mixed and mastered it. And the the one who originally mixed and mastered it was so upset because he was like, why would you turn this one part of the song up? Like, yeah. this, I mixed it and mastered it for a reason like this, you know? Yeah. Um, so I do think, especially with people who are mixing and mastering, there's a part of it where you kind of have to just trust that, you know, this is this is what you asked for in a, in a certain sense as well. Or, um, you know, this is the direction that you gave me and I'm fulfilling that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think you just can't, you know, you're not the artist as, as the mixer right. and the engineer. You're not the artist and you're not the producer. You're just there. Right. It's, you're basically a glorified waiter, in, in my opinion. And that's where I think people, uh, they try to get into engineering because they didn't succeed as artists, but they still want to put their print, you know, they want to put their creative input into that product. And I think sometimes that shoots them in the foot. 
Right. You're just a servant to these people. So don't, you know, don't go crazy. So how does the collaborative process as a producer who gets called in for a session differ from an engineer or a mix and master that gets called in for a session? Well, I mean, the producer is the one that helps create the, the song, right? The, right. the produces the beat. The engineer is the person that records the beat and, and mixes it. Right. But I guess, I guess, uh, I guess you kind of explained it previously. You said the server is kind of like, kind of like the waiter. And then I guess the producer would kind of be like one of the cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. But I think it's more than that because the producer is the one that is, is, you know, they're usually calling the producer because they like what the producer has done previously. Right. right. So they've heard that sound. They want to be associated with that sound. The producer is like a stylist basically. Right. You know, why do, why do stylists have their jobs? Because they know what, you know, the latest great look from Gucci, the great, the new um, look from Louis Vuitton, and what each thing from that um, season to, to pick from. Because there's crap that is released that they don't want to pick from to put on the people at the photo shoot, right? So it's the same thing the producer does. There's a million sounds they could use, but the producer's picking the sounds that are pop culture right today. Right, right. That's why the and then, game is a young game, because they're in tune with youth culture. Right, right. Um, and then just, you know, in terms of logistics, like what's a normal deal structure? I think I think people are a little bit more familiar with what a producer deal structure looks like. You know, you maybe get an advance split on the record, on the publishing and on the master side. What does it look like uh, for a mixing and mastering engineer? Is it mostly flat fee or is it sometimes yeah. you get points on the record? or Flat fee and points if you know... You're really, you know, if you've been in the game for a long time, mm-hmm. but I mean, what are points in, it depends like on what level you're working at, right? Because right. straight to SoundCloud, there's no points. You know, right. if you're using DistroKid, you think that artist is ever going to, you know, have an accountant pay you out? Come on. So it's like, at what level are you operating? I think what people oftentimes... I don't know. There's two music businesses, like the real music business and then like street level music business. So like, what are you, you know, there's two realities just to be hundred percent real, you know? So I think people get confused that they're operating in the real music world, but nah, they're just hanging out with their friends and making beats, you know? And sometimes those kids that do make the beats, then they jump up and then they're like a little pump, right? From zero to <laughs> 5,000 in one week. Right. And that's I'm not saying that that can't happen. And I'm not trying to say, you know, don't chase your dreams. But at the same time, you know, you have to be realistic and kind of, you know, what what part of the business you're really in. Right. Right. For sure. Totally. So one of our friends of the podcast kind of uh, submitted a good question. Shout out Kian. But uh, he saw and kind of there's the credit that you have according to Discogs on uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller 25th. And mm-hmm. I know there's kind of a floating story about M- uh, Michael Jackson having about 100 mixes of Billie Jean that he worked through before he and Quincy found the right one. So what's the largest amount of mixes you've had to pour through to find the right one? And is that typical of kind of like creative genius in your experience? Or is that um, in that you're creating as much output as possible to filter from? Or do you think ideally less is more in that aspect? I mean, you know, I, it's, you know, that's a tough question. I think it's all personal preference, right? And it's, mm-hmm. you know, once you have enough money to do 100 mixes, then, then there you go. 
you know? Because <laughs> it's like, and, you know, that was Michael at the height, you know, and it's the same way. That's why Kanye did so many mixes, because he had the budget. And he just, you know, mm-hmm. attention to detail was, was crazy, uh, or is crazy. But I just think, I don't know. I don't know if necessarily it's better with more revisions. Like, I did all the lights, and I think the last one is 58 versions. And that was after we had already changed the production eight times throughout those nine months of, from inception to, to starting to mix. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. You know, oftentimes it's magic the first two days and then you just start paying, you know, paying yourself in the corner doing crazy shit that doesn't really pan out in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. In your experience working with Kanye, I mean, what I think you'd said in another interview too, that he did a really good job setting parameters, um, even what you just alluded to here, uh, parameters for a project, different kind of creative constraints or an environment to kind of guidelines to play within. And just what you alluded to here is kind of a process of experimentation. Are there any kind of big takeaways that rubbed off on your process um, through collaborating with him or how, how did you personally grow in your experience and in the, all the time you spent collaborating and working with him? I mean, man, it's like, you know, I, I learned when I was younger, uh, I played basketball a lot and, you know, one, like the fre- before my freshman year, I played when I was in eighth grade of my summer, I played with all the, all the high school kids. Right. So when I went to the freshman tryouts, I was, you know, ready to go. And mm-hmm. I had spent all that time against stronger opponents. So when I was playing against the kids my age, you know, I was better twofold. Well, if I would have kept playing with the eighth grade kids, I would have not had the abilities that I had. It's the same thing, you know, <laughs> like working with Kanye, you know, he, and, you know, it was the people that he had around. That's another thing that I think made uh, his record so good because, you know, I was doing a mix. Mike Dean was doing a mix. Andrew Dawson was doing a mix. You know, if it was just one person doing a mix, that person is just going to do, you know, do something and be like, oh, here it is. And then, you know, then he might accept it, he might not. But if somebody else is going to come in and, you know, um, if somebody else is going to come in and challenge you and make you work harder, then the product is going to be better. You know, same thing with this whole thing that everyone, you know, capitalism versus socialism, right? So how did things grow? And how, how, how is there competition? Without competition, you know, you'd be stuck in mediocrity. And, and then you use that in commerce, you use that in music, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. For sure. When it comes to, um, I mean, in your other, when it comes to like working with big personalities, whether it's kind of like Kanye or Travis, I mean, was there, I mean, how did you kind of make space or, how did that did you have to approach those environments with a unique angle relative to a lot of the other kind of like opportunities and projects that you're working on and if so kind of how did you structure your or how did you differ your approach to to make it work the way it did just shut the fuck up <laughs> there we go it's like you can't that's another thing i think that people don't understand is you know when you're going to these rooms with these massive egos like i said you're you're the waiter you know yeah 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 you know? And, you know, every time you open your mouth, it better be fucking something good or, you know, you're going to be judged. And if you want to come back tomorrow, you say some stupid shit, you know, you won't get the invitation. Mm-hmm. So know your know your role, you know, as I say, stay in your lane, you know, and just try to be 
as valuable as possible. Speaking of this greatness that you're talking about, at least referring back to, you know, when you when you were playing basketball with older kids, you've seen also a lot of artists go from, you know, their eighth grader, so to speak, to to becoming the older kid. Um, what do you see in in artists creatively, uh, whether that's Travis Scott or other artists that you work with that you think lends itself to um, how they've achieved their longevity? I just think that uh, um, I think that basically innate talent is what it all comes down to. Okay, some people get lucky, you know. Um, and are in the right place at the right time, might have the right friends, you know, their uncle worked at MTV, and so they got da-da-da, da-da-da, and it kind of happens. But to stay in the game for a considerable amount of time, it takes, uh, you know, just an amazing amount of talent and then a strong work ethic and um, no drug use. Right. One thing that I like a lot about a lot of the artists that have been around a lot that I like a lot, whether it's Kanye, Travis Scott, or um, anyone else that I like, Rihanna, is that with each album, they bring a little bit more of themselves in a different way. So when I heard College Dropout, you know, that's obviously a little different than or different than late registration, which is different than graduation. But it all felt kind of like an extension of the last the last version of themselves, you know. Um, so as a listener, that's kind of what keeps me intrigued for as long as as long as I am intrigued. It's like, okay, when they go to this next album, when they go to this next project, when they come out with this new, you know, personal brand, is it something that I want to gravitate towards? And then usually the people that I stick around the longest are the ones that just it's just a check every time. Like, yo, this is dope, this is dope, this is dope, this is dope, you know. Um, so in terms of longevity, just in my opinion, I think, you know, as a listener, as a consumer, I think the innate talent, um, manifests itself in sort of a new different way every time mm-hmm. um what do you think uh, how do you think these artists achieve longevity as as people just you know in the industry as in, you know working and collaborating with with people a little bit less of the um outside of the creative process and more on the on the personal side of things or business savvy side of things i mean i just think uh it kind of depends like who you keep in your circle mm-hmm. um you know because it's like they have to keep their head straight and, and moving forward and not just a business and a creative, but, you know, emotionally, because once you control your mind, then you can do whatever you want, you know, but if you start having things that are breaking down your, your mental stability, you know, and I think also uh, just general like intelligence, you know, like just your IQ, I think, you know, these mega artists, cognitive abilities are above the norm you know i think the the ones that have longevity you know it's like don't kid yourself you know they might be playing a role you know but i bet you know if if they weren't in that role they could work at nasa they could Mm -hmm. it's like you know not every artist but because everybody can you know steal their 15 minutes of fame but to keep the career going like you said earlier Miles Davis is a great example of that, you know, like every record he made always changed its style and accommodated a bit of what pop culture was at that time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's right. kind of what you have to do, you know, and it's hard. It's hard for some folks to do that because, you know, you get, you gotta, 
you get caught up in the drugs and, and the women and, and the people around you all telling you that you're geniuses and that, you know, and then you don't push yourself and then you lose that edge. Right. It kind of ties back to you saying that you need to surround yourself with people that are better than you. And I think if, you know, if you're being called a genius all the time, but you're still surrounding yourself with people that are better than you, I think the proof is in the pudding and you kind of know that there's more that you need to do and there's more that you need to improve on um, if you're surrounding yourself with, with the greatness that you aspire to. When it came to, to get specific with, uh, in terms of examples, because I think somebody that you got to work from very, from a very early stage and has really gone on to one of these kind of like megastar uh, tiers is somebody like Travis Scott. So, I mean, um, when you were managing him, I mean, it was in very early stages. What are various kind of like inflection points as an artist for him when it came to his own personal and artistic development that you felt laid the foundation for the success he has? Well, I mean, his work ethic was just, you know, insane beyond, right? You know, like his, uh, um, you know, he would never take the word no for an answer, whether, you know, he, if he, if you get a studio, if somebody book him a studio, he'd stay there for three days until they threw him out. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying like to stay, like he would sleep there, he would live there, you know, like undeniably, you know, whatever it took. There was no days off. There was no never watching Netflix. There was no chasing women. There was no, you know, it was like always let's work on the video. Let's work on the artwork. Let's make another song. Let's write another verse. Let's find better beats. Let's, you know, find, you know, and he was also very good at, at playing the social side, right. Of getting in with larger celebrities and befriending them and, and, you know, watching how they move in their circles and taking bits of that and putting that into how he works. You know, not just mm -hmm. Kanye, but other people he was around. He was around Diddy early and he was around Wale and Rick Ross and just watching how they maneuvered in the business and just, you know, copying that and then using that the socials aspect of that to booster his, you know, role in popular culture yeah uh, that makes a lot of sense too and i mean i think it's uh i mean it seems like being proactive being a quick mover and being able to capitalize upon opportunities as the opportunities continue to grow i think even in your own career it seemed like when you some of the first big success you had it seems from kind of what i was learning is uh kind of when you started working with r kelly and it was largely an opportunity that you kind of paved given that you were an early mover on using pro tools which is relatively new which is kind of like a newer software at the time um when you think about like today are there specific skill sets for other producers or if you were to map that same kind of like being an early mover on something so that way it can help you get your foot in the door are there like various areas where you feel like people should focus on building unique competencies in order to help open new doors well i mean you just kind of you gotta be able to produce what's kind of current i don't know there seems to be not any new technology recently uh, you know, there's no new Pro Tools. I mean, Fruity Loops kind of like, if you're still trying to make beats on Logic, you're wasting your fucking time. Because right. it's never going to, because never, unless you're making an EDM song, it's never going to sound like a Young Thug song, no matter how many fucking plugins you put on it. 808 <laughs> is never going to sound like an 808 coming out of Fruity Loops. It's just never going to sound like that. You know, and so right. you have to be using the same tools you know, and my analogy with this is like the difference between Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. Okay, so Jimi Hendrix doesn't sound at all like Led Zeppelin. And the reason why is because Jimi Hendrix used a fucking Stratocaster 
and Led Zeppelin used the Les Paul. Two completely different sounds. So you're never going to achieve the sound of Jimi Hendrix with the Les Paul or vice versa. So it's the same right. thing. You're using Fruity Loops. It's a Fruity Loops world out there. You look at the Billboard Hot 100, and I can just hear that those beats are from Fruity Loops, the majority. I know, you know, or Ableton. But I'm just saying you have to like, like if you're trying to cut and paste this shit in Pro Tools, forget about it. Because, you know, your 30-second hi-hats are not going to sound the same if you chop them on that grid in Fruity Loops as you chop in, in uh, Pro Tools. And it's the same thing. as like Pharrell... When Pharrell first started popping, he was with the Neptunes. He was using this keyboard called the O1W. It was a chord keyboard, and that's what he did all the sequencing on. Everyone else was sequencing on the MPC. And Pharrell's beats, if you listen back to all his early shit, it just sound, it has this jerk to it. Right? It just mm -hmm. sounds a little bit different than everybody else's beats. So, I mean, maybe in his case, that worked out because that was like his specific sound. It gave it that, that thing that Pharrell has, like that that jerk, that staccato-y weird attack, you know. Well, and the same thing. It's like the Kanye, you wouldn't have Kanye's sound without the ASR-10. Mm -hmm. so, I don't know what it is now. I think what it is now, personally, is like the, it's not necessarily a software, but like everyone uses the REC-20 plugin. Is that what that's called that makes it sound old and shit? It's like you got to use that. You got to, you just have to use whatever you know, people or other people are using, in my opinion, because you can't right. stand out too far from the norm if you want to be a part of the norm. Yeah, you can do right. it. You want to make shit nobody cares about, you know, and then like a small majority of people will like it and maybe, you know, <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know. It's different because I'm older and I got a family and shit, so I'm in it to win, you know. I'm not in it to, <laughs> I'm not in it to like, you know, have a small segment of people who think I, I'm really cool, but you know, I, I'm, I want to be McDonald's all day. Right. Right. Um, how do you think it makes sense for producers early on that may not have a lot of credits or um, a lot of notable releases to market themselves? I, I know, obviously, you know, as you get older producers, obviously um, I used to work for a producer, uh, Metro Boomin, and it kind of just seemed like eventually the, the collaborations just came together because he was friends with all the, with all the rappers and producers and artists that he wanted to work with. But obviously there's a starting point. So how do you market yourself? If you don't necessarily have that. I don't want to say clout cause that's not what I mean, but I guess respect. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think it's hard these days. Cause it's mm -hmm. so, um, I mean, cause previously you could go places before, you know, the pandemic, you could go to where creatives hung out. Right. Mm -hmm. My day would have been the studio or a club and, and make connections that way. But I think now, I guess you just would be putting beats on Instagram, direct messaging artists that you want to work with, or, you know, just find an artist and develop them, you know, mm -hmm. and early on. And then, you know, but don't imagine that they're going to, you know, ride with you forever because, you know, that's not a reality, but I think at the same time, if you, you know, find young artists and you develop with them and then somebody's going to hear that it's instead of sending beats to people, I think it would be better to, you know, even if it's a small artist that, uh, you know, then somebody's going to hear it and be like, Oh, who did that? You know, and get back to that. I just think it's a really hard game. 
everybody wants to be a producer now because you know what you get fruity loops and splice and, and you're a producer boom yeah. yeah but that's not that's not a producer that's a beat maker that's broke yeah we we compared that actually in a in a previous episode with sherry who about the democratization of programming and how there's all these websites like code academy free code camp you know udemy where everybody can learn how to code and it's starting to happen to the music industry now um where you you know everybody can kind of have garage band uh fruity loops logic splice like you're saying and then uh they're all of a sudden uh, a producer so what you have is and this is what's happening in the software development field too is a lot of junior producers and not many senior producers so the the flip side of that is you have a lot of junior I mean, not producers, junior software engineers and a lot of senior and not many senior software engineers. So the flip side of that is you have a lot of junior producers, so to speak, and not that many senior, you know, senior producers. So I just think that's pretty interesting. I think, too, though, uh, you know, speaking to that, I don't know, I lost my train of thought there. Uh, I think you need to producers need to work with artists. You just can't crank out beats all day long. Because I know Mm -hmm. a lot of producers that do that. But it's like. Like I was saying, the basketball analogy earlier, you know, if you're making the beat by yourself all day, you're going to shoot the layup from the right side because you like shooting layups from the right side and you're good at shooting layups from the right side. But if you're playing with somebody else or you're making a beat for somebody else, that's uh, fuck that. That shit sucks. Go to the left side. Shoot from the three-point line. You know, it's like, you know, I think that's what pushes you. And that's what, you know, when I was starting out engineering, you know, I could make a song. I could record drums. But until... You know, you had a band in the room and the drummer said the sound sucks and the bass player was bothering you and needed a different headphone mix and blah, blah, blah. You weren't really an engineer because you, right. can't, you can't really hang with the big boys and, and make those, you know, decisions to, you know, accommodate what a real professional needs to get done. You know, mm-hmm. right. For sure. One thing you alluded to, too, is uh, like the producer versus beat maker. Like, how do, how do you divide the two? I mean, what's the difference in your eyes? Um, well, I think the you know, the producer, okay, a producer, okay. So what if you got vocals to a song? You know, okay, a producer doesn't know how many sharps and flats are in C minor. Mm-hmm. Okay? Or a beat maker doesn't know how many sharps and flats are in C minor, okay? So if you get a song from an artist that, you know, they wrote the song to just some loop they found that had no production on it. But then how do you make it like, oftentimes I have ideas that I send out to people and ask them to restructure it. Like, oh, I had this idea, I played this melody, I put this 808 under it, it's an F minor, you know, take the song. And, and, you know, and then somebody had cut a vocal to it, you know, and they did a hook and a verse and I send it to them and the beat maker can't even hear what the fuck the hook is. They, they take out all the music in the middle of the hook. I'm like, what are you thinking? Like, th- that's where you're supposed to put all the music. You know, you're supposed to take it out in the verse and in the pre-chorus so that when you get to the hook, but I mean, they know how the soft clipper works on Fruity Loops. And, you know, that's what, so that's what a beat maker is. And now I'm not saying that beat makers are bad because sometimes beat makers can inspire somebody to write a smash, right? But then, you know, you have to have more than one kind of capability if you really want to be a professional. Right. Right. I want to segue a little bit into your label. So um, when, when did it make sense for you at in your career uh, where you felt like, okay, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I've kind of done what I need to do with mixing and mastering, done what I need to do as a producer. I want to do something else in addition to this and really start uh, my own label. Um, well, I just, I've been waiting to find somebody that I thought had the mental capacity to do the business side. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, what I had with Travis was I was trying to manage him. I was trying to, you know, because when I was managing Travis, he wasn't making any money, right? Mm-hmm. So I had, still had to engineer and produce and, you know, do writing sessions, whatever it does to pay the bills, you know, to keep the lights on, to rent the studio. And, you know, so it's the same thing. I couldn't start a label by myself. I needed somebody that, you know, anybody can start a label, but what's your marketing department? Okay. Right. Like how are you going to push this record into the community? You know, um, and it just through all the years that I've been, I've been in Hollywood for 20 years. You know, I know people at all the agencies and all the marketing outlets and, you know, different things like that. So how do you utilize them in, the, in you know, to help further people's career? I mean, so I was just waiting. I met Matthew, my partner, uh, and he wanted to do it. And, you know, I just felt like he didn't really know anything about the music business, but he was a very intelligent individual, right? And so I mm-hmm. figured... You know, uh, I heard once from Jimmy Iovine, he said, you know, you can teach anybody the music business. It's not that hard, but you can't teach people music or how to pick talent, how to recognize mm-hmm. talent. That's an innate gift that you just know, right? To, to recognize what a gift of talent is. But the music business, it's not that hard. Once, if somebody, you know, it is hard in the sense that, um, for years, it's just been so segmented so that it's mm-hmm. like the Illuminati, they call it or whatever. It's been segmented so you can't really get into it. And there's only so many different ways. And unless you're paying the right managers and the right agents, then you're just not really a part of it. Or the right publishing company if you're a producer, you know. Right. I think, um, at least from my experience in the, <laughs> in the music industry, once you kind of know base level knowledge, you know, what the publishing is like on a song, how producers and artists split the publishing versus uh, what points on a master are, that sort of thing. And then I think after that, there's like this huge, just gray area of experience where it's like, okay, this situation may not ever happen again, but you learned something on this day. Oh, this situation may not ever happen again, but this is, you learned how to navigate something similar to it. And like, there's this huge cloud above like the basic knowledge of the, the music business where you being business savvy, you being tech savvy, you just being an intelligent person, will help you navigate those situations as long as, you know, when you walk into a room with a record label and they offer you in advance, you know what that means, you know. <laughs> um, at least that's kind of how I see it. I mean, it's not so much the advance, it's so much, you know, I found the other day that an artist that we had released uh, now had got a record deal and we're only receiving 20% of their royalties. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, is that, is, is that a good deal for you? I don't know, I don't see how that's <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, so you get your name on a billboard or two, but is you know, I don't know. I guess that's the trade-off, though, is that they'll they're, the labels are, you know, major corporations are convincing them that they'll be global superstars, but they get, you know, their hands in their pockets for that, you know. Right, right. Um, so, um, first gen your label is uh, is primarily singles based. Um, what, what made you go that route versus um, the, the more traditional route of, of uh, you know, larger labels hiring for multiple albums at a time sort of type thing? Um, 
Well, number one, we don't have a lot of money to advance people and nobody wants to sign uh, a long-term deal without getting a hundred grand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I think that, you know, you don't necessarily have room to grow if you do a, a large deal from the beginning. Right. So that's mm-hmm. why it's all first gen. It's all about like the first step. And, you know, if we, if we, if you're happy with us, then we can continue working. If you want to go out and, and, and sign a major label deal, then that's also, you know, I'm, I'm just a fair person. I feel mm-hmm. and I, I've known other people that sign, you know, crappy production deals and then they're stuck with these people for the next five years. And then, you know, if they get a deal, then that production agreement person swoops in on top of them and complicates it, uh, you know, with the label and, you know, I don't know. It's like, I think, I think people, I don't know. I just think that singles are, it's like a date, you know, we're going to do, we're going to do this date. We're not getting married. You know, I'm not going to support you for the rest of your life. And (laughs) we're going to do this dance. And if it's a good dance, we'll do it again. And if not, then, you know, have a nice life. Right. Right. And And then since it's all end all of my life either too, it's like, you know, I just basically did it to stay in the game. Uh-huh. Relevant because I'm just this way we always have an ear out for new talent and we have a group of college teams A&R kids that do our A&R and so that and we had a bunch of shows before the COVID thing where we were having shows around the country so it just keeps us looking for new talent it keeps us out you know experiencing youth culture it keeps you know you can't just sit at home and, and look on SoundCloud which is kind of the angle that all of the other uh, APGs and 300 and, you know, all that. You just can't sit there looking at, you know, we're going, we try to go one step further through our college teams and the associations, you know, because they're the consumer. So who's making, Mm -hmm. their friends are making the music. They know because they're the ones that are, you know, going out on the weekends and hanging out with other 20 year olds and like finding new artists and new DJs and that, that whole kind of thing. Right. So what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned since, since starting the label? Whether it be about releasing a record or have a good lawyer, you said? Have a good lawyer, have a good agreement on on the deals. Um, Don't waste your time. Send the agreement over right away. You know, like don't dance around the fact, you know, one or two meetings, assess their talent, assess if we want to do this. You know, they can assess my talent. I can assess their talent. Uh, not dance around the fact that, you know, this is a business because a lot of artists, you know, feel like, oh, well, you're the producer. Well, you should just give me the song. And then, you know, why, why don't you just give me the song and then I'll put it out on my label. And then I'm like, well, I don't know. It's just, I, I think a lot of people don't understand that it is a business and it's not, you know, yes, uh, it is your song. It's your voice. And, but you know, it might've had a different outcome if we weren't involved. And at the same time, you don't understand the marketing strategies of, you know, what we're capable of helping you with. Right. For sure. And I know as we kind of come towards the end to a close here, one kind of question, uh, last question I have is, um, I mean, succeeding in anything typically requires like continuously failing or like failing off into the, I mean, that's how you're going to make progress. You're going to learn lessons the hard way. Are there any moments that stand out as kind of those learning the, learning the hard way moments in your career? 
um, that ended up like paving the way for some of the success you've had? I don't know. I mean, no, not, not for Anthony. <laughs> no. I mean, I think everything is the hard way. Though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If it, it, my whole career has been the hard way, even to this day, because if it was easy, you know, I would be Pharrell, you know, mm-hmm. or I would be Dr. Duke. You know, I think it's still uh, easy is not something that is an engineer's career, you know, because mm-hmm. easy would be turn in the first mix and, you know, it, it's great. You know, and, and everyone loves it. I mean, that's just, I don't know. I mean, failures, I would say maybe more poor decisions. You know, yeah. uh, sure. you know, like I had, I, Mark Ronson hit me up in 2002, you know, in 2012, and I never called him back because he was kind of cold at the time. Okay, that was probably a bad decision. That was right before. <laughs> um, what was it called? The Bruno Mars record that he put mm-hmm. out. That, oh, damn. But at the time, he was he had, the album he sent me in a mix was I thought it was horrible, and so I was like I didn't even call him back, and <laughs> that could be one. But I mean, I think you know uh, I don't know it could be other things. Could be not trying to produce more earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe the whole failure was engineering and not producing and not writing because then it took away time from writing and producing, which makes more money and, and moves you forward in the career. But at the same time, like, if you look at the career of Manny Mariquin, right? He's like one of the biggest mixers in the world. And he's been doing this since like uh, 86, no, I mean 96. So you show me one producer that made beats in 96 that went number one, that is still making number ones in 2020. And I don't believe there is one, but Manny's still every day of the week uh, making number one mixes with top artists in the game. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to say what uh, what is the what is the best career path, you know? Because mixing is some live fast, die fast shit. Yes, you make a lot of money quick, uh, but the royalties, you know, go downhill. But at the same time, as an engineer, you can have a longer career, but there's less money quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know failures. I don't know. I don't know. It's a tough one. Maybe yeah. one of my failures is signing my publishing deal with Rondor Universal. That was a fucking failure because they suck ass. And then they like <laughs> they went out of business and was absorbed by Universal. And it's like the traditional shit where you know, uh, just like an artist. There used to be these old stories where you know artists would sign a record label, then their A and R would get fired, and then they would be set on forever. Right. So same thing in a publishing company. If the A&R person that walks you into that building and you sign your deal with that A&R person, two years later they lose their job or the publishing company goes defunct and absorbed by somebody else, they don't give a fuck about you because they have no incentive to help your career. They want to help the careers of the people that they brought into the building, mm-hmm. right? Because then at the weekly staff meetings, they can say, oh, well, me and Casey, we just put a fucking da-da-da on the chart and blah, blah, blah. Well, no one cares about you because they're, they're not going to – they just don't care. Yeah. For sure. There's nothing to win from you. So that's, right. I, that could be a failure, but that failure lasts a long time. Yeah. Right. Well, dude, I, I think you've had an incredible journey with some major wins and successes. So I think it's uh, really mm-hmm. grateful to have had you on today and, and learn from a lot of the experiences, Absolutely. the trials, tribulations, triumphs, man. So 
And then you're still keeping yourself busy, man. So there's a lot, lot more to come, and we can't wait to see what happens. Well, let's let's hope so. We'll see. Yeah, there we go. Fingers <laughs> crossed, brother. Well, thanks again, man. Take no it easy. Problem, thanks for having me. Have a good week. Of course. Hey, you too. too. Cheers. Damn. Yeah, Why man. We're going gonna to remember that one, dude. Anthony Kilhoffer, like I said, just a legend, an OG in the game. Um, we don't really get to you know, have too many people on here that just have years and years and years and years of experience. And you can just tell you know, by the way he spoke about you know, Monster from the early days of the mixing engineer that he spoke on that's still making number ones today. He really knows what longevity looks like. So I was really glad that we got to break that down in terms of you know, which artists you know, the artists that you work with, how did they achieve that longevity and going through innate talent versus, uh, you know, keeping the keeping the better people around you. I think, you know, if you're not even if you're just a producer, if you're a mixing engineer or, or anything else in the, in the in the music industry, I think you'll you'll gain, you know, you've gained a lot from this from this episode. And I'm, you know, I'm very proud that we did it. So, yeah, for sure. I think it was super, super valuable. I think a lot of times uh, when it comes to actual like that, refining the quality of music don't get me wrong you need to be able to market you need to be able to push your songs um but if the quality and the, the, those foundational elements of a, of a great song aren't there then you're not making it easy on yourself so i think uh, very grateful that he was able to really dive into a lot of the, those details so super grateful if you guys haven't already please be sure to go ahead and drop and leave us a review uh apple podcast spotify wherever you're listening to, to us but we're super grateful for the continued support so We'll be back yeah. next week. And I just want to shout out, you know, the people that are on our Patreon, you know, um, for a long time, we did this for, for free and we were fine doing it for free. As a matter of fact, you know, paying for the expenses, we were losing money and we were happy, just as happy every week to get on the podcast and, and educate people through our guests, you know. So um, just want to shout out the people on Patreon that decided to take it to that next level um, and help us out. You know, we're excited to keep investing into the patrons that subscribe. So just wanted to give a shout out before we got here. Go. Well, appreciate y'all greatly. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>